Hi, this is Steve Hargadon, and welcome to the Future of Education. It is Wednesday, April 21st, 2010, and our special guest tonight is Larry Ferlazzo. And Larry, will you say your last name for me because I keep saying Ferlazzo and I want to make sure it's right. Well, I, I, I suspect that that is actually the accurate Italian pronunciation. I use Ferlazzo. Okay, you're being kind to me. So, Ferlazzo. <laughs> <laughs> Larry, we're really glad to have you here. Larry's going to talk about uh, English language learners, but as I think you'll see, that the topic is uh, broader than that. If this is your first time at one of our Future of Education sessions, they are sponsored by Illuminate. My employer and I work on a project called Learn Central. It's a social network for educators that is free, that has Illuminate baked in. We hope to benefit from it. Coming up on the Future of Education, of course, tonight with Larry. Uh, tomorrow in the day, uh, the Unicide Institute report on the Wichita Public Schools Learning Centers, a, a blended with online learning back into school who have dropped out. Um, in the evening, Tim Magner on School 2.0. A lot of fun. Next week is our special on Students 2.0. Starts with Dr. Robert Epstein speaking about his book Teen 2.0, moves to Jackie Gerstein on user-generated education, and then Anya Kamenetz on DIYU, her new book. In between there, Randy Orwin on open software, and lots more fun sessions coming up. We hope you'll if you missed the session, the recordings are up on futureofeducation.com. Thanks to our support from C. Bloom and Associates, uh, my book fund group. Um, but do look at those recordings, a lot of fun recordings, and hope some suggestions of people you'd like to hear from. If this is your first time here, there are some ways you can participate and illuminate. If you think you might like to take the microphone and ask Larry a question later, go up to Tools Audio and run the Audio Setup Wizard. Make sure that your mic is working. If I have that question, you can click at the bottom of the participant window. You'll see a large icon with a hand and a green up arrow. You click on that to raise your hand and we'll keep the mic. If you don't want to use the mic, you the smiley face or the clapping hand to let Larry something. And of course, you can leave a message in the chat. Uh, if you go up to View Layouts and you switch to the wide layout, it's a little bit bad chat. So that uh, we're getting some clapping for that, that role. OK, now's a chance for you to let us know where you're listening from. So to the left of the map, you'll see a little a wand with a red star at the end. Click on You're here, Spain. The absence of putting a click on the map. We do North America centric tonight, which makes sense if it's English language learners. So wherever you're listening from, or if you're listening to the recording, we're sure glad to have you. Okay, so Larry, I looked the book up on Amazon, and like you said, I think it's just started to ship. And notice that you published another book just a few months ago. So is this part of a trend? Are you going to be uh, pulling books out of your head every six months? Well, I don't, I don't know about uh, every six months, but uh, uh, I actually have a third one that should come out next spring, which is more on uh, 
instructional strategies and classroom management in general for students. But it's uh, been pretty insane. A little bit of fun. I don't know how many more my wife is going to let me write, though. Well, the, the book seems to be largely informed by your work as a community organizer. And so before we kind of drill down to the slides that you've prepared, do you want to tell us a little bit about your background and what's brought you to this point? Sure. Well, I've been a, a teacher for six years at Luther Burbank High School in Sacramento. It's the Sacramento's largest inner city high school. Uh, you know, we have about 2,200 students, and over half are English language learners. Prior to becoming a teacher, I was a community organizer for about 20 years, um, working with working in low-income communities. And in that work, I, I saw the changes that people made in their lives based on what they learned through organizing about taking initiative. Uh, developing lead leadership and openness to working with diverse people. And I saw them making these changes, you know, in their 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, even 70s. And I thought to myself, God, how much better um, their lives would have been if they had made some of these changes earlier. So uh, I began to explore teaching and visiting classrooms. And uh, I was interested in particular English language learners because my, my parents were immigrants and my organizing was primarily in immigrant communities. And I remember visiting classrooms to observe and saw how ELLs were looked at more through uh, a deficit lens, uh, which led to sort of lower level thinking skills as opposed to looking at them through the lens of assets. And that's the reason why we were successful in organizing. And so I've been trying to figure out how to, over the past six years, figuring out how I can bring some of the uh, organizing methodology into the classroom. So those of us who are in the United States have heard a lot about community organizers because of President Obama. What does a community, or what did you do? What was your job? Well, I worked, uh, I worked for a national organization called the Industrial Areas Foundation, which since the 1930s uh, worked with community, uh, I guess almost coalitions of religious congregations, labor unions, and neighborhood groups, and uh, who organized to try to respond effectively to community problems in a way where the, the people who were most affected by the problems were integral to the developing the solutions. And so my job, I mean, I would just go on hundreds, about thousands of individual meetings and listen to people and organize and we talk about the difference between agitation and irritation. That um, I am irritating you if I'm challenging you to do something about my interest. I'm agitating you if I'm challenging you to do something about your interests, the concerns that you have identified. And so I would meet with people. Um, the leaders of these institutions that made up of organization had decided that you know, our perspective is that every community is organized, just often in the wrong way. 
in, in the context of who has power and who has a voice in making in decision making. So the idea was to to engage people who have not been involved in public life before in developing solutions and negotiating with public officials and institutions to help achieve those solutions. And I think that contrast between agitation and irritation has also been very useful in the classroom. Yeah. So we would uh, so so we would get an affordable housing built, jobs that paid a living wage, citizenship classes, getting citizenship backlogs reduced from the Immigration Naturalization Service, get affordable childcare. But the people who had the problems were the ones who were involved, who were leading the solutions. So it is very interesting then that you would think about kind of moving that back to life skills in an earlier age. Yeah, well, again, I think it was, uh, and I think that the people who were involved in organizing were always saying, God, I mean, I wish I'd learned this stuff before. So it was, I think, you know, it, it made sense. Um, and my father was also an ESL teacher. So I guess I had that uh, in my genes. That was really an intriguing part of the book to read. The fact that your dad was an ELL teacher, uh, and he said there's a line in the book specifically. It's not coming to mind right away, but he said one thing that you relate in the book that really kind of stuck with you. Do you yeah, yeah. I mean, I think he he said that uh, his goal was not to teach teach people to survive, but instead to teach them to thrive. And, and that's. And you had as well in your family this story of your grandmother. So I'm, I'm thinking this would be whom she allowed something to take place with him, and it really kind of made a connection for you lifelong. Yes, in the you know in the 20s and 30s, uh, not only in New York but in other communities, uh, students who were you know sort of rambunctious. Or viewed as probably you know, now have you know ADHD or other issues, um, especially immigrant students were viewed as candidates for lobotomies. So uh, in that in the context of those of those days, particularly in New York City, it was suggested uh, to my grandmother that my uncle Horace was a good candidate for a lobotomy and. How he was always described to me by my father as was you know as a really brilliant, but uh, you know a troubled youth, and then he ended up being institutionalized for the you know for the rest of his life, and you know that you know and seeing him and hearing that story certainly impressed upon me the the fact why English language learners immigrants um, uh, you know particularly need to develop the capacity and the power to not only go along with rules, but to shape uh, shape the the formation of them and to be able to uh, not just go along with what the expectations are of our general society. Right. So I'm, um, I, I, want to, I want you to move to the slides. Um, so I'm, I'm curious to know, 
because if I read the book feeling as though what you were speaking about wasn't just about English language learners, obviously deeper. But have you? Do you feel like you've had some more flexibility in what you've been accomplished because this is a group where they've traditionally not been seen as successful, and so you're maybe not under the same scrutiny to accomplish the same kind of tangible test-based goals that the non-immigrant or uh, English language learning population would be required to sort of shoot for? Well, I think that, uh, you know, you know, I, I teach both, I, I teach a wide range of students, uh, including our mainstream classes, English language learner classes, and uh, international baccalaureate classes. So, I mean, I, I use many aspects of this methodology in all um, of those classes as I do as do our colleagues and um, I mean I have lots of questions about the validity of standardized tests and test scores but my you know all my students do pretty well and our our school um, you know uses a lot of this methodology uh, school-wide and it's part of our culture and you know, last year we were one of the first, one of the few high schools that got out of fourth-year program improvement um, in the United States. That's a pretty big deal. Of course, now we're back, as in most, you know, most schools are going to eventually be in program improvement if no major changes are made. But uh, and I think this is applicable, and you know, for schools like us who have the culture of focusing on not teaching the tests, but instead developing lifelong learners, I think positive test results will come, will come naturally. Well, good. Well, let's give you a chance to go through the slides. So you now have control of the whiteboard. Just look for the, you know, the little arrow and click through. Well, that's the, that's the name of my, of my book that just came out. And just, uh, I don't think I mentioned the, the previous book that was published last spring was uh, building parent engagement in schools. Um, and this English language learners teaching strategies at work is the title of the book that just came out. As I was saying, you know, ELLs are often seen through a lens of deficits um, that lead toward lower level thinking skills. And I think the key is looking at ELLs and looking at all students, particularly any student in um, schools and low-income communities, uh, through a lens of assets, which I think you know will develop, uh, you know, create opportunities for developing higher-level thinking skills. Sorry. And in organizing, I mean, how I think I've applied this in the in in school is what I call the organizing cycle, which is very similar to how organizers work out in the community uh, in terms of having five, five steps. And the key, key step uh, to begin is building relationships. Um, I think the first step is always building relationships. The last step is reflection. And how the steps in between go, I think, can be pretty flexible. But um, organizing is just another word for relationship building. And a story that I, I and I share in the book was uh, 
Yeah, a Russian immigrant in uh, one of our classes who was feeling very frustrated at her inability to master English for some conjugation of verbs, which is just a pain in the butt. I mean, for anybody who's learning English or most other languages, I know it drove me nuts when I was when I was learning Spanish. Uh, and you know, she was just was not willing to accept the fact that it was just going to come in time. Uh, she was getting very frustrated and was affecting her whole view, her whole perspective on, on language learning. And then spending some, I spent some time just trying to learn a little about her life. And out of that, learned in, uh, in Russia, she loved ballroom dancing and has, uh, you know, had competed in a lot of competitions. And in talking with her, we came up with the idea of developing a a board game using the first, probably the first board game in the history of English language teaching where uh, that was used to, to teach English. And we had, um, you know, each level of the board game was based on a harder uh, dance that she had mastered in Russia. And you know, it was a board game with a bunch of cards. And every time she'd get on, get a space, she'd have to answer one of the cards that she had created, uh, answering a question about some verb, some verb tense. And she got very engaged in it and wanted to stay after school every day to play with this, to play this game with her friends. And it got to the point where actually all the students uh, in the whole class wanted to create their own board game to folk to to, to emphasize. Uh, a particular issue they were working on. And that just wouldn't have happened without taking the time to build relationships and to, to listen. And out of that, it's not just a matter of just listening, but in me using those relationships to get her to do what I want, but I also an exchange. Um, and I also was enriched by learning more about her life and about the uh, uh, you know, the role of Baldwin dancing in Russia, which was, I had no idea it was so important. Uh, and there are tons of studies, including Marsano, that highlights the importance of a relationship between a teacher and student and between peers. And for ELLs, it's particularly important because it reduces embarrassment and creates a low anxiety environment. Um, you know, some other ways to do that is, you know, are ranging, and I list this in my book, you know, having students create posters, sharing, you know, things they love to do, followed by individual meetings between students where they have follow-up questions. Um, you know, having people, having students create, you know, draw their neighborhoods and particular stories about particular events that occurred in different parts of the neighborhood. Um, you know, so there are lots of things that can be used as ways to build those relationships. One of the things that we do at our school is also develop sister classes. Yeah, tr trust is the key. I see that in the chat. Um, is, you know, we do a thing called a dialogue journal. And a dialogue journal is fairly uh, well known among teachers of English language learners where students write about write a journal about their their life, well, you know what happened that week, and officially how it's all written about in the, in all the books is students write these journals, give them to teachers, 
and teachers respond back, but done in a way where you're not correcting what uh, the student has written, but you're sort of reflecting it more accurately. So someone wrote, oh, I, I, I cook with my mom on Tuesday. I said, oh, you could write that, oh, you cooked with your mother on last Tuesday. But it's insane to have a teacher respond to all these things. I don't know how anybody does that. But what we do is we have sister classes of native English speakers or more advanced English speakers, and, teach, and teachers in those classes, um, yeah, like writing in the chat, <laughs> uh, have their students, um, they teach their students how to engage in the dialogue journal, and, th and they use it as an opportunity to teach grammar for their students. You know, you don't know something until you teach it. So uh, instead of me having to respond to 30, um, individual students in other classes respond to students. And they, develop, uh, and they develop relationships, and they have parties together, go on field trips together, too. And, and it's everybody wins. Uh, so relationship building is one key. I'd say the, uh, the next thing I want to talk about is learning by doing. And there's lots of research in my book about that. And obviously, I mean, I'm sure a lot of people have heard that expression before. It's uh, how I apply that in, our, in the school is through this idea of inductive teaching. Uh, that where you give examples and students create patterns and create concepts instead of deductive, where you give them the rule, then they have to apply it. Um, I mean, for example, I'll give some examples of this. Well, one is concept attainment. It's called where you have a list um, of, yes, if I'm trying to teach a grammar uh, example of how to use plural verbs, uh, verbs in the plural sense, you know, list under, under a yes column examples of student writing where they have used it correctly. And on the no column, examples of student writing where it hasn't been used correctly. And showing them one at a time and having students have to figure out why is stuff on this side correct and why is stuff on this side incorrect. Um, another example is uh, a picture word inductive model where students, uh, you, know, you, put, you put a picture uh, on the wall, uh, students help identify vocabulary words, and then follow a process where you introduce the picture in 20 words, you put words into the category, students put words into categories, whether it is based on spelling, or whether they're all food related, or whether they're clothing related, and then students find new words that fit those patterns. And then they next have to complete closes, fill in the gaps that are teacher provided and describe the picture, which then they can they then categorize and then add new sentences into categories. And then they convert those sentences into paragraphs. Uh, so it's really, you know, instead of uh, teachers um, filling students up, you know, students really can grab 
the controls of their own process of learning. So those are those are that's uh, some examples of inductive learning. I'd say another one, you know, free voluntary reading. You know, students being able to pick their own uh, reading material. For English language learners, the fact that there's so much available online where they can have multimedia, the audio written for the text, and the audio available for the text creates lots of opportunities for students to be able to read high interest stuff. And then lastly, the other example in terms of learning by doing, in the book I focus on three areas, inductive learning, free voluntary reading, and problem-based learning. The idea where there's a uh, working in groups to solve you know, a problem. One example is gave students two cups, uh, another cup of water, and a pencil, and told them to figure out how the ancient Greeks would have figured would have used that to tell time. And you know, it was great. Students were able to learn the scientific method, and uh, um, but it was a, pro a problem that they had to solve. Um, another example was mentioned in the, te in the, in the uh, text in the chat about where students were able to figure out which you know which neighborhood they wanted to uh, which was better. We looked at they identified the most important qualities of a neighborhood for them, and then they compared their neighborhood with the richest neighborhood in Sacramento. But based on all the uh, qualities that they identified as important for the neighborhood, the neighborhood they all chose their neighborhood as a much better place to live. Uh, let's see. Really quickly, I think the next element is accessing prior knowledge through student stories. You know, I mean, our, our English language learner students have tons and tons of stories. Nothing like uh, looking at it through a lens of assets, ranging from you know KWL charts. Students may not know about if you're studying New Orleans. They may not know about Mardi Gras, but they certainly know about it, tons of other festivals that they have in their, uh, you know, in their native uh, country. Another example in terms of accessing prior knowledge through stories is using a Frarian lesson sequence based on Paulo Freire, where, for example, I show the first, uh, the beginning of the movie Les Miserables where the bread is stolen to feed uh, the dog, the family. And you ask students, well, what do you see? And they just describe it. Then, you know, what problem do you think is represented in the picture or video? What do you think caused the problem? Have you or your families ever experienced a similar problem? How did you or your family respond to the problem? So there's lots of opportunities to to get students to tell their own stories, to create higher order thinking skills, and tons of language development opportunities. Another element is the importance of mentoring student leadership potential. You know, when I have a small group, you know, I try to proposition students ahead of time so that you know we've got lead we've got students who are actually helping lead the groups they're prepared they know what to do uh, 
how to engage other students in uh, who, who are not being particularly involved. But it's not going to happen magically. Supposedly, there's a Chinese saying that goes, uh, you got to stand still with your mouth open for a long time before a roast chicken is going to fly into it. And uh, you know, it's just a matter of having some brief conversations uh, with students to prepare them ahead of time to lead, you know, to lead small groups. A lot of research has shown that the qualities of a good language learner are being intrinsically motivated, a sense of self-efficacy, you know, self-confidence, willing to take risks, learn from mistakes, and to teach others. And those are also great qualities of leaders and the leaders, the, quali the leadership qualities that we teach in organizing. So I try to look for opportunities to explicitly teach that, um, finding readings from different cultures um, that highlight that as well. Yeah, here are the qualities of a good language learner. And then finally, the importance of reflection. In an organizing, we used to talk about people uh, being a mass of undigested actions. And the word reflection means actually uh, means bending back. Now, Hannah Arendt, uh, was a philosopher, wrote about uh, the trial of Adolf Eichmann, the architect of the Holocaust. And when she was witnessing the trial, she ended up concluding, she came up with a great phrase, this famous phrase of the banality of evil. That, you know, Eichmann wasn't an evil person, but he had basically lived his life without any kind of reflection at all, and just see what he was told. And um, I'm not suggesting that that's going to happen to our students, but it's amazing. I mean, if we don't teach our students the importance of 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 thinking about what's going on in their lives, they're going to they have a, they can potentially miss lots of opportunities for understanding and just live life mechanically. And so I really do a lot of reflections in our class. Uh, of course, when you do these reflections, you never know what students going to come up with. Uh, I know one question I asked a student to to write to is, you know, what did you learn this week? And he wrote back, uh, I didn't really learn anything this week. But Mr. Philaster tried his best, so that was okay. Um, and my my last slide, no cockroaches, is reflects uh, you know, Kafka's book *Metamorphosis*, where um, the main character, because of his you know living life unreflectively and just go you know living life mechanically ended up turning into a cockroach. So uh, again, I'm not suggesting that our, any of our students are going to turn into cockroaches. But we've got to push so that students can develop the capacity to reflect in the school and out of school long after they leave our, they've left our class. So Larry, so this that is, is really fun for me. My um, presentation. Why don't you take a second and kind of describe what you have done with your website? Because a lot of people know you from uh, the blogs and the best of. Uh, mm -hmm. Do you want to talk about that quickly? And I can actually take us there using a web tour. Sure. Uh, 
Well, I was uh, when six years ago when we got uh, uh, a huge number of Hmong refugees came into Sacramento. We we're trying to figure out how to how to apply this idea of of voluntary free reading to to our students. You know, we didn't have a zillion tutors that could work with people individually. So I created this web, uh, website, uh, which now has about 9,000 categorized links that provide easy, easy opportunities for English language learners to access uh, high interest reading. Uh, and partially as a result of that, we had a computer computer lab where we did a controlled study and students participating in the computer lab scored much higher on their English assessments. And out of that we ended up developing a home computer project providing computers to uh, computers and internet access to immigrant families to learn English which was recognized by the International Reading Association two years ago as the best example of using technology to teach reading in the world. Um, I subsequently developed this blog which uh, is geared more towards teachers and uh, highlights what I believe to be the most accessible and best uh, sites in the web to provide value added uh, to uh, provide value-added benefits to students uh, by using technology. And I don't write about it. In order for me to write about it, it has to be, I have to be able to figure out how to use it within a minute or less. And an English language learner has to be able to learn how to use it in a minute or less. Uh, and I'm not, I'm not extraordinarily tech savvy. So uh, it's got to be very accessible. Uh, and one of the things I've developed over the years is a series of the best lists, where I've got about 450 now um, best lists for under various categories, ranging from uh, reading to writing to teaching writing a zillion different lists. So I've put the link to, for the list portion of the website up. I'm going to go back to the uh, websites of the day. And I'm going to put that as well. Now, uh, I did a, a, a quick Google search. And Larry, there's you also have a Larry Verlazzo. Am I, I'm, you know, I feel like I've taken the wrong turn. <laughs> Verlazzo? Ferlazzo, yep, you got okay. it. Okay, so Larry Ferlazzo uh, site, and uh, I don't know if you point people to that, to that ever, but I'm going to put that up. Yeah, that's that's designed for student self-access, LarryFerlazzo.com. Yeah, if you click on English um, in that main page, that will lead you to uh, like 9,000 categorized links um, for English language learners. So the blog is more designed for teachers, whereas this website is designed for student self-access. So uh, I, I, you are a great tweeter and tweet quite a bit. Do you want to talk a little bit about your uh, use of Twitter? Yeah, I, uh, I probably, I, I started 
started using Twitter about a year ago, and um, you know, in the course of finding all these resources for English language learners, I see a lot of other good stuff that's not necessarily accessible to ELLs. And I, I basically use Twitter as uh, you know my delicious in terms of set you know of, of sharing those links that I think others other folks might find useful and that I don't blog about. Uh, and it's been really great to uh, to connect up more more personally, I think, with uh, with people around the world uh, who share both my interest in teaching English language learners and also, I think, you know, my interest in uh, you know major, making structural change in how our schools are are run. Uh, so I was a little, I was pretty reluctant to get involved with it at first because I figured, God, you know, one more thing and um, but it certainly has paid off on a lot of levels. So maybe you can help me uh, put into words an idea that I've had for the last couple of days. I was looking at the um, ISTE nets and the, the, the whole idea of a document that represents sort of what should be taught or what kind of skills should be gained. Thought about the really engaging and compelling exercise that must have been to produce that list or to produce the Partnership for 21st Century Skills list, and, and how if you had been a part of that committee, you probably would have been thinking deeply about really significant issues, and then you you create this document in which you say, including our significant things learned. And and at that moment, then it gets handed down as a result instead of a process. Mm -hmm. Rather than saying, "Okay, here's the process. Gather together your educational community, and here's how you can talk about what's really important, and create a list for yourselves of what you think the significant skills are." What I hear you doing in the classroom is very much being focused on the process, almost institutionalizing the process rather than the results. What, what language do you use to describe that? Because I'm obviously not doing the best possible job here. Well, it's actually sort of funny you should mention mention this because uh, I'm on a uh, sort of a consultative body for our school district, and that uh, we have a new superintendent which we're trying to who's trying to develop some vision and 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 I also I just I wrote an article for for Ed Week about this that I think I think it's fine to sort of create some some guidelines uh, some. Uh, for example, when I've written about parent engagement, I talk about the difference between parent engagement and parent involvement. And I think the idea is, I think it's very helpful to offer that kind of a vision and then have people create their, you know, how how does that apply to their existing uh, existing practice? No, I mean I don't think we will need a checklist. Uh, I mean I think one of the problems we have is is, is teachers and uh, administrators get zillions of checklists with scores of things that they should be doing or considering doing. And I would you know what I propose instead is developing more of a a few key elements of a vision, and then out of that. Like you say, you know, 
come people come up with their own ideas of how to apply that. Um, and I, you know, and then to and then to to help make that vision their own. Uh, and I think it's great that people 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 have got to do some deep thinking. I mean, a lot of people are just you know, I mean, we're really busy on a lot of things, and I welcome people's deep thinking as long as I can react to it and make changes in it and how it may, and how it plays out for me. But but I but I think that you know the uh, a lot of people will come up with these uh, standards or perspectives. Um, you know, as you're saying. Are less don't create a process for people to make it their own. So I think it might be helpful also for you to describe the structure of the chapters in the book. So for those who are listening to this and are interested in the book, you're, you're very um, methodical in how you structure the chapters for what you're providing people. Do you want to talk quickly about that? Sure. Uh, the well, I think that you know each chapter. I mean, begins with a short with a uh, a short story of an actual classroom situation with an analysis of how that played out. I mean, the chapters are based on each of the five um, uh, the five steps of the organizing cycle. After the analysis of the story, it describes research that uh, recognizes, it describes why this element is really important in the classroom. Um, then it describes how to apply it in the classroom with lots of examples, including a lesson plan. Each chapter has examples of student work, along with uh, how it connects to the English language development standards of California, which I think are comparable to, to other states. Each chapter has multiple examples I call sort of tech tips. Um, also gives specific examples of research and action that clearly shows examples of how that is uh, specific research is applied that can be applied in the context of this organizing cycle. And then I think about how to how to evaluate uh, if you're being successful in you know in relationship building, in reflection, in learning by doing. There's also a a big appendix uh, listing uh, specific tech resources for each lesson, and also there are uh, there's a whole a substantial portion on using learning games in the classroom. So that's sort of a, a brief description, but I think it, it is pretty methodical. And what the great thing about it is they. They have it's a great table of contents. It's a very lengthy table of contents, but you can quickly it's like four pages, which clearly shows where if you're looking for one thing, it'll lead you right there. Okay, terrific. I still only have the electronic version, so <laughs> it's so funny. I I really love the physical, even with the electronic. I it uh, in the convenience of it, I still uh, am going to end up getting the physical copy. So this is the time we'll switch the Q&A. So if you have a question for Larry, uh, you've been good about putting them in the chat. Please feel free to do so, uh, to continue to do so. You can also use that 
icon at the bottom of the participant window, the hand with the green up arrow to raise your hand and take the microphone if you have a question for Larry. Okay. Uh, so how did I become a teacher and what has kept me at it? Uh, well, after, uh, after I decided to become a teacher, um, after visiting classrooms and doing a fair amount of reflection, um, I uh, was able to find a, I had a choice, either to, to go into a, a year-long program where I was able to, where I would be paid to be a teacher and paid to learn, or to go to a year-long program, social program, where I actually had the, the classes on site at an urban middle school. Uh, where I would student teach, but also be going to classes there, and it was pretty clear to me that I didn't really know what in the world I was going to be, you know, what I what I was doing in the classroom. And after seeing some teachers, you know, teach, so I decided to uh, choose the latter, and my wife was uh, supportive of that, both financially and otherwise. And then after that year program, I was specifically recruited, actually, by the then. Superintendent of, I mean, the president of the Sacramento Board, uh, school board, and the principal of our school, who was interested in trying to figure out how to bring organizing to be more of a centerpiece of that school, and that's how I ended up at uh, at Burbank. We've uh, got a lot of questions that have come in. Yeah, looking at the go up to view layouts, make sure you're in the wide layout format, which will allow you to see the questions. I think the next one was. Uh, Nelson asks, I'm, I'm wondering about some of the specifics of your teaching. He later says that he was lost the first two, three years. I don't know if you want to address any of the specifics. Um, and that may relate to Kristen's question. I respect all the work you do. What types of strategies do you recommend for balancing placing ELL students with their peers versus providing them with individualized instruction? Um, well, maybe I'll answer Kristen's uh, question. You know, first, I think in our school we uh, we have a be beginner classes, early intermediate classes, intermediate classes, and advanced classes. And but all of our regular classes are uh, are generally fifty percent or sixty percent. Advanced English language learners. So we have a you know with with um, that large number of English language learners, um, like I said, all all of our classes have ELLs. I think it's pretty important to uh, to both provide opportunities uh, for ELLs to be with students at their same language level, um, and also to connect them with other students, mainstream students as well too. I mean, it's pretty easy. Like at our school, art, PE, uh, it's easy to get beginning ELLs into those classes almost immediately. Uh, I'm not a real big fan of uh, newcomer schools. That just are that are only limited to newcomers. Though I'm I'm sure there are good you know that people have had good reasons for those, because I think that lets 
that lets most other schools off the hook for trying to figure out a way that they can respond to the needs of all students. Um, let's see. Being lost the first two or three years of teaching. Yeah, I mean, I, th I think if you're not, I feel pretty lucky our school places a, a real high premium on professional development, on quality professional development that's actually chosen by the school as opposed to most useless professional development that I think universally is given by district central offices. Um, so that's, uh, I think that's what saved, saved me. Steve, should I just go down the list of questions here, or Absolutely. how should Pick I proceed you'd, here? You'd like. Okay. Because Nelson actually uh, kind of went on there to say he was interested specifically maybe in uh, vocabulary and teaching okay. vocabulary. Okay. Let me uh, mute David. How about examples of ways you integrate technology into your classroom? Well, all my classes have class blogs. And you can uh, access those in the sidebar of my blog. I have a ninth grade classroom blog, an intermediate English blog. That gives, uh, you can see tons of different examples of, um, of class assignments that they, that they do and how they use it, uh, ranging from uh, you know, using it as a great way to become better writers to uh, providing audio recording so they can hear how, how they are uh, speaking. Uh, you know, English Central, which was created last year, you know, is probably like you know, m many, EL many ESL teachers around the world would say it's the best site for English language learners ever where uh, students can hear, watch, and hear videos and then record their own audio, and then the computer software grades them on how their pronunciation is. Uh, and it's just, it's just great. And it's going to be around, around, around a while uh, for free because it's financed by Google. Um, are you ever able to have one on one time to see individual progress of your ELL students? Well, we do a lot of individual assessment. Uh, actually, not just in our ELL students, but for me, and I think for our school, the uh, an extraordinarily accurate assessment process is having students complete closes, uh, fill in the gaps uh, several times a year, and also have them read to us for a minute each, uh, and we're able to gauge both their uh, the closes are able to gauge the vocabulary and comprehension, and the reading fluency able to, you know, gauge the the rapidity of their ability to read, which is pretty critical, and uh, uh, and we do that individually. We make the time to do that. Uh, integrated social media into instruction. Well, we certainly have had sister classes around the world that have shared. Uh, multimedia projects and then commented on them. Uh, and that's, that's been a real clear way to do it, that we've done it. Uh, suggestions, in pro from suggestions in programs that work well for ELL learners at the elementary middle school level. 
Well, I think a lot of this stuff uh, can be used across the board. Certainly on my uh, website for students, there's you know a bunch of stuff. I mean, most sites are accessible both to elementary and middle school students. Alice Mercer, who was an elementary computer teacher in Sacramento, does great work with ELLs uh, at her site, and she has a uh, and she has a blog. Uh, and Alice Mercer, M E R C E R C E E, sorry, M E R C E R, and she has several uh, blogs for all of the different uh, elementary grade levels. Let's see. I agree. Professional development is very helpful when they plan it out wisely, and sometimes it can be pointless. And uh, that's really been my experience. Though professional development, based brought in by the individual school, uh, has worked out great for us. Uh, yeah, David M is saying English Central is a website. It's EnglishCentral.com. It's it's great. Um, let's see. Oh yeah, and I see someone's put it up. Oh, it's EnglishCentral.net. Hmm. Uh, but if you just type in English Central on a search, it'll it'll do it. And it's certainly on my website. I don't know. I tried to get through a lot of the questions. I don't know if I missed some. So if you think that Larry missed a question, you can raise your hand. It's the hand with the green up arrow, or you can put it in the chat there. Nelson's asking, do you do a lot with grammar? Well. Um, how I use grammar, I, I, I teach grammar a lot using that idea of concept attainment, where you know, I give examples of uh, you know of correct grammar, mistakes in grammar that are geared to teach one particular concept, and then students are able to develop the rule on their own. And uh, uh, so I, I mean I do that. Uh, Pretty regularly, and and that's a it, that's a fun way to teach grammar, and I, that's actually the only fun way I have ever seen or heard of to teach grammar. I don't know. Sometimes fun and grammar it's hard to include in the same sentence, uh, and uh, pronunciation. I do a lot of reading and echo reading. Uh, where students, you know, repeat what I've read in terms of pronunciation. In English Central, that, speaking of value added, there's just nothing better, I think, for pronunciation than English Central. Uh, could you explain what a little more, Sal? I'm not sure which one you're referring to. Oh, the grammar. Well, the concept attainment is the idea of. Uh, um, you know, listing the the correct way of saying a particular, of using a particular grammar, the incorrect way, and having students get, I mean, basically figure out why is one correct and why is another incorrect, and then have them have to explain the rule. Uh, so 
So Larry, I'm wondering if you've ever heard of Carl Blythe, who's at the Texas Language Technology Center. Recently did a Merlot webinar with him. I'm going to put the link in the chat. But he does something intriguing to me. Uh, they're teaching foreign language to college students, so the idea here would have to, to apply it a little bit differently. But they have the upper level students record the video lessons for the first year students. So if you're a French student, you actually see a video of someone who's a year or two ahead of you in school, and they're in France on a summer trip, and they're actually talking to a shop merchant, or they're talking in a conversation, and they say, this, now I'm going to do this, and then they, they do it. And what's interesting about it is that Carl says that the, the actual videos then end up being imperfect. You know, mm -hmm. Sometimes the pronunciation is incorrect or something else, but two really significant things happen, one of which is the students see their peers who are only a year or two ahead of them actually involved in conversations and doing things of significance in the language. And so they become very motivated and excited. And the upper level students are actually becoming teachers. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So pedagogically, I just thought it was, it was brilliant. And it, all it required was some flip cams. Have you seen anything like that at your level, or have you thought about something uh, similar? We, well, well, certainly, uh, I mean, on a, a simpler level, uh, you know, with our classes, are just as our native English speakers use the dialogue journals with the intermediate English students, the intermediate English students also uh, prepare lessons for the early intermediate students, and the early intermediate students prepare lessons for the beginners. So uh, we we always try to incorporate that in all of our classes with one caveat. I mean, one key thing is anytime we do this, including when the native English speakers are teaching, you know, are doing the dialogue journal or getting together, we always make it reciprocal so that it's pretty, I think it's important that the lower level English learners are able to teach something. It may not necessarily be related to language, but it's related to something, whether their culture, their history, among story cloth, or whatever, so that um, they that both are teaching each other, even though the primary focus is obviously, you know, the higher language level teaching the lower language level, but recognizing that no matter what how low their lang English language level is that recognizing it has no impact, no relevance to their level of intelligence or the stories they have or the capability they have. So that I think it's just important to have that kind of reciprocity. But it's just you know, it's it's just a non tech version in many ways of what you were saying, but it sounds like they're like they're doing great work there in Texas. Terrific. So Larry, why don't you type your email address in or the way or your preferred method of contact if anybody wants to make contact with you. I, I moved us to the slide that has the, the names of the two books and then those links that you have there. Uh, I'm going to mention just briefly thanks again to Illuminate Learn Central, to C. Bloomin Associates, and I'll, I'll leave the final slide up of the, the list of sessions coming up over the next couple of weeks.
Thanks, Larry. I, I love the relationship. I love the uh, the journey you and I have uh, enjoyed together, talking from everything from open source software and computers in the home now to English language learners. Uh, thanks for coming on and being a part of this. And thanks to those of you who attended tonight. We sure appreciate your being here. Well, thank thank you, Steve, and thank you, everybody. And uh, and and how? What's the best way for people to get the link to this recording? So I will post the link to this recording at futureofeducation.com. Um, but if you came in through Learn Central, it, the listing there will also have the link. It will have the full limited recording, and it will have an MP3 version, and it will have the chat um, in an RTF format. So three different ways to, to pull that content. Great. Now, be, when will you be able to? When will that be posted, Steve? It should be sometime tonight, depending on what my family schedule is. But uh, uh, either within the next hour or sometime after 11 o'clock. <laughs> Great. Well, thanks, Steve. And again, thanks to everybody. And I, one of the great things about Twitter and the blog is I feel like I learn, uh, I get as much as I give. Well, and you give a lot, Larry, and you are okay. greatly appreciated. So have a great, great. night. Have a great night, everybody. Take care. Good night.